Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is economist Jeffrey Sachs, university professor and director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University. He's also director of the United Nations Sustainable Development Solutions Network and has been advisor to three UN secretaries general. In addition to being one of the world's leading experts on poverty and economic development, Dr. Sachs is the author of many influential best-selling books, including The Age of Sustainable Development, The Price of Civilization, Building the New American Economy, and most recently, The Ages of Globalization, which we'll be talking about today. Jeffrey Sachs, welcome to the show. Great to be with you. Thank you so much. You know, in the book, you focus on these seven ages of globalization going all the way back to the beginning of humanity and ending in our, in our present time. And you argue that each of these eras offers important lessons about the challenges of globalizations today. And so I thought we could start at the very beginning, the, the Paleolithic Age, from around 70,000 to 10,000 BCE. And, and I got to say, starting out, I never would have conceived of this as an age of globalization. I think of, you know, small local tribes and that sort of thing. So the first question, I guess, that myself and probably a lot of listeners would have is, how is this an age of globalization and what possible relevance could something from that long ago have for the 21st century? Well, uh, the first age, uh, this uh, uh, Paleolithic or uh, pre uh, uh, agriculture age is literally the age in which uh, humanity reached all parts of the world, uh, starting in Africa, spreading out across the Red Sea uh, into uh, uh, what is now uh, called the Arabian Peninsula, and then along the Indian Ocean, uh, later uh, into Europe, uh, reaching, of course, the Americas, uh, around uh, 10 to 15,000 years ago, uh, coming from Asia over uh, the landmass uh, we call uh, Beringia, uh, and also reaching uh, Australia and the Polynesian Islands. It's an extraordinary story of reaching the whole world and uh, evidence of, even then, trade of objects, uh, of uh, stone uh, uh, tools, that are nowhere close to where they must have come from, uh, given the geology, uh, given the resources, and obviously were carried long distances and already part of international trade and international exchange. Uh, it's also, of course, part of uh, the very uh, formation of uh, our human nature. Uh, as uh, one of my gurus, uh, the a uh, great evolutionary biologist, E.O. Wilson of Harvard University, uh, says uh, about our strange time that uh, we live in today. He says, we've arrived at the 21st century with our Stone Age emotions, our medieval institutions, and our near godlike technologies. But when he refers to the Stone Age emotions, he refers to very fundamental facts of human nature, how we bond with each other, cooperation within groups, fighting uh, between the in-group and the out-group, uh, the 
uh, size of a band of uh, people that uh, stick together, uh, often considered now to be around 150 as the maximum size, but similar to uh, a workplace division uh, or a club. Um, these are attributes that are core to our human nature formed uh, in the African savanna uh, tens of thousands of years ago. So the relevance is uh, actually to the very core of what we are as human beings. And I, I love I love that line about the Stone Age emotions and, and godlike technology, and it's uh, so fitting. In the next period you talk about is the Neolithic Age, and we start to see agriculture and sedentism, which is people kind of sticking around in one place. And what struck me in your discussion of this age really is the 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 importance of geography really comes to the fore, and, and in it you discuss what, uh, what's been called the lucky latitudes. And, and I was hoping you could talk a little bit about what, what those are and what that means. Absolutely. For uh, most of uh, human history, that means uh, for most of uh, the 100,000 to 200,000 years of uh, uh, us as a uh, modern species, we were uh, not sedentary. Uh, we were not farming, but uh, human beings were hunters and gatherers. Uh, so uh, we uh, survived day to day by finding our food or hunting for our food. At the end of the last ice age, uh, at the end of the Pleistocene and the beginning of our geologic epoch uh, called the Holocene, the climate became more favorable. Uh, we reached warmer temperatures. The glaciers retreated. And uh, clearly, uh, there was a, a new abundance of foodstuffs so that people could remain sedentary and still survive, not having to go out to search, to hunt, and to gather. And from that initial sedentism, which almost surely preceded agriculture, uh, by being in one place at one time, uh, human beings in various parts of the world independently discovered uh, the techniques of agriculture, that they could plant seeds, select for better seeds, improve uh, crop traits, and uh, settle down, as it were, with a higher uh, amount of food. What followed uh, was a, a higher number of people that followed that food supply so that as the food supply went up, the population went up. And uh, soon enough, uh, what had been a very, very sparse number of uh, anatomically modern humans uh, started to become tens of millions of uh, human beings now settling into uh, what one could uh, call villages everybody essentially farming for survival, but living in groups, uh, living in clans or bands of uh, hundreds. Uh, and this created the beginning of politics. Uh, it created uh, the beginning of uh, hierarchical structures, because as far as we know, hunter-gatherer societies are much more egalitarian than uh, societies uh, beginning with the age of agriculture. Uh, and we can see, uh, of course, the development of metallurgy, uh, of uh, bronze and uh, copper uh, 
tools uh, and uh, jewelry and artistic creations, uh, the beginnings uh, of uh, proto-alphabets uh, like uh, hieroglyphics, uh, the domestication of farm animals, which is absolutely fundamental uh, for uh, humanity uh, ever since then, and uh, new forms of transport, including sailing vessels uh, uh, that uh, could carry uh, people to uh, islands, uh, even very long distances. Uh, so this became the formative uh, age of uh, people settling down, and this, uh, of course, crowded out hunter-gatherers. There are still a few on our planet today, but by and large, uh, settled human populations, uh, settlements that began in a few locations uh, in uh, Mesopot what became Mesopotamia, uh, in Western Asia, in uh, the uh, Indus River Valley, uh, in uh, the uh, Yellow uh, River uh, and uh, Yangtze River valleys uh, in China, uh, uh, in uh, parts of the Americas, in uh, what is now Central America, um, and uh, the Andean region. These became the uh, first focal points of agriculture. From then, populations increased. You asked me about the lucky latitudes. If you look on the globe of where this agriculture took place. Uh, it took place in a band of climate that was suitable for agriculture and typically near major rivers, as I've mentioned, like the Tigris, Euphrates, the Indus, the Yellow and Yangtze rivers uh, and so forth. And it took place uh, in uh, locations that weren't too cold, and weren't too hot. Uh, so by and large, in uh, what we now call the subtropical zones or the uh, temperate regions, uh, not icy cold regions that humans had not really been able to master agriculture uh, in large numbers, and not in the hard tropics uh, near the equator where Life is very difficult for other reasons, and agriculture is uh, often very difficult for other reasons uh, as well. But the disease burden is typically very high because of tropical vector-borne diseases. What emerged is a band of geography, especially in the Europe-Asia part of the world, or Eurasia, uh, roughly between 20 to 25 degrees north latitude to roughly 40 to 45 degrees north latitude, where the villages first developed, early agriculture first developed, and towards the end of this period and the beginning of the next epoch, cities and city-states began to develop. And over a period of thousands of years, this band of area, which reaches from Western Europe uh, on the Atlantic coast across uh, Western Asia, what we now call uh, Anatolia in Turkey or uh, parts of uh, the Arabian Peninsula and what is now Iran and Iraq uh, into Central Asia and into East Asia, uh, culminating on the Pacific uh, in a band of 
Chinese uh, civilization, uh, these lucky latitudes uh, turned out to have the preponderance of human population, the highest productivity agriculture, the uh, places where most of the uh, early cities developed, and related to all of that, the places where uh, technology developed, and with technology came power, with power came empire. So that uh, lucky latitudes uh, shapes a tremendous amount of human history. You mentioned uh, China and empire, and one of the things that struck me most, I think, about the the, the look at the pre- previous areas of globalization is is the story of China, because it it seems like everything, well, not everything, but practically so many things were invented there, including, you could argue, as you do in the book, uh, a large-scale capitalist uh, economics. Or, and then you see at the beginning of the Ocean Age, around 1500 or so, these massive Chinese fleets sailing, and, and then it just seemed to wither into nothing. And so I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about the, sort of the rise and, it seems to me, the fall of China in this period. If you look at the long history of uh, civilizations, uh, especially from around uh, 1000 uh, BC to uh, around 1500 AD, and really if you take from 1000 BC to 2020 AD, our current uh, year and moment in history, there's been a constant interchange between East and West. Globalization means interconnection, and one of the core parts of interconnection, in addition to trade, of course, and movement of people, is the movement of ideas and technologies. And there have been periods in human history where technologies spread from west to east. There have been periods where technology spread from east to west. There have been periods where uh, what we now call the Middle East, uh, the Arab region, was absolutely vital for spreading technologies in both directions. It was the middle uh, of uh, a conveyor of technologies and ideas that went in both directions. And in this regard, China from... uh, already uh, a thousand BC until today has been highly populous, uh, has been a creative and innovative civilization. And for long stretches of human history, uh, has had the technological lead uh, and uh, also been the progenitor of uh, great cultural uh, ideas uh, like uh, Confucianism, uh, which has been so deeply influential uh, in East Asia, but also globally. And uh, for the period from roughly 500 AD, when the uh, Western Roman Empire collapsed, to 1500 AD, when uh, Columbus and Vasco da Gama uh, were the uh, new uh, explorers of a new age of exploration led by Western Europe. During that 1,000 years, China was clearly in the technological lead. So many core technologies of uh, 
printing uh, with movable type, uh, paper making, uh, paper currency, um, gunpowder, uh, the compass, uh, and uh, many other fundamental technologies came from China uh, and gradually spread through uh, Western Asia into Europe. And Europe was uh, far behind and was a receiver of these technologies. Then, as you uh, recounted, something very uh, extraordinary took place. It's one of the great puzzles and one of the greatest hinge moments of human history. And that is that China lost its lead. And it's a complicated uh, and uh, endlessly debated story because it's so such a fundamental transition in uh, human history, in economics, in ideas, and in technology. Uh, but somewhere from uh, 1400 to 1600, the initiative shifted from China to the West. And one of these remarkable moments uh, occurs in the first part of the 15th century, when China had the greatest naval capacity and the greatest fleets the world had ever seen uh, under uh, Admiral Zheng He, who was uh, an admiral for uh, the Ming Emperor. Uh, and uh, he took several expeditions uh, throughout the Indian Ocean and uh, reached East Africa, uh, went to, to uh, several of the great uh, trading outposts of the Indian Ocean. And these uh, voyages uh, lasted until 1433. And then they stopped. And clearly, uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, the uh, emperor and the court decided to stop the naval expeditions. A uh, couple of reasons uh, claimed are uh, that uh, China had to turn its attention to nomadic invaders from the north. Another idea is that uh, Confucian philosophy uh, preached against uh, the commercialism and uh, the sense of uh, needing to make contact with the rest of the world. China was the Middle Kingdom. But the voyages stopped. And when they stopped, uh, China actually dismantled the fleet effectively for uh, a couple of centuries. And at the same time, Europe had the most uh, extraordinary series of events. One was its own development of navigational capacity, uh, led by uh, Henry the Navigator of Portugal, as he uh, championed and was patron of voyages down the west coast of Africa, and then fundamental transformation, uh, Columbus's uh, discovery uh, of uh, the uh, Americas. Uh, and with that, it seems the trigger was set, perhaps with the one more fundamental change, and that was Gutenberg's uh, printing press uh, in uh, the middle of the 15th century. So that all of this uh, huge change of world outlook could be recorded in books and books could circulate cheaply and massively and accelerate the new knowledge, rate of change, scientific curiosity and the rest. 
So while China closed up, the West opened up uh, almost uh, at the same moment. And uh, one could say that this is the time that uh, West, uh, meaning in this case, Western Europe uh, in particular, uh, became the base of new thinking, new ideas, a renaissance, uh, a scientific revolution, a technological revolution. And in fact, the next time East and West really met definitively is when a now wholly dominant power of Western Europe encroached on China in the 19th century. And this is epitomized in the two opium wars uh, that uh, begin in 1839, wars by the British Empire attacking the Qing dynasty uh, of China, but with Britain having overwhelming military power because it was now an industrial country and China was not an industrial country. And I always found fascinating that the great uh, uh, creator of modern economic thinking, Adam Smith, wrote in his magnum opus, The Wealth of Nations, in 1776, that China was a prosperous country, but a static country, hugely populous, uh, very productive, uh, seen in a way as a success. But Adam Smith uh, put really the essence of it by saying, because of, he says, its constitution, its uh, nature of, po of political organization, it is static. It wasn't fully static, of course, there were changes, but it had really absented itself from the dynamism of scientific and technological change, with some exceptions, for example, the arrival of the Jesuits uh, that brought some of the Western knowledge to uh, the court uh, of uh, the emperor. But by and large, when West and East really uh, meet again in the middle of the 19th century, the West is dominant. Uh, and there is the story of the modern age, which I think is changing just now as we speak. China is regaining its normal place in history uh, as a leading country with technological sophistication. That's not something unusual. That is the norm of the last 2,000 years. What was abnormal was the strange uh, twist of fate uh, that uh, began in uh, the closing of this fleet in 1433 uh, and uh, really went up to the 20th century. Yeah, I wanted to actually ask you a little bit more about, about China because it seems to me in our, in our modern era, uh, at least to me, the most startling thing is the massive growth of China. And it almost feels to me uh, if like it's sort of like the United States is sort of like Great Britain in the early 20th century that U.S. is still the top global power, but we see this competitor looks a lot like us back then coming up. And it feels almost, I don't know, I get a sense of inevitability about it, just given geography and population and that. I mean, is that a, is that a reasonable analogy? Well, I think what is uh a fundamental part of my own thinking about economics is that uh, all things equal, that's a big loaded <laughs> expression, 
all things equal in a peaceful, interconnected time, places that are lagging behind other places have the opportunity to gradually catch up uh, and converge with those other places. So let me unpack that. Uh, China by 1950 was an impoverished country when the People's Republic of China uh, emerged in 1949 after civil war, after many invasions, uh, after many depredations by Western powers, uh, after Chinese uh, Japanese occupation. China was impoverished. Uh, it was uh, a country of peasants. Uh, technology uh, was uh, a century behind the industrial uh, lead uh, of uh, the United States uh, and Western Europe. The period uh, of the previous hundred years uh, had really been a kind of hell because uh, there had been the opium wars. Uh, there was an internal bloody, bloody war called the Taiping Rebellion. Uh, there were the imperial powers encroaching on China uh, and uh, many wars with Japan, uh, many pressures from the United States, from the British Empire, France, and others. Uh, there was civil war. There was upheaval. Uh, and then uh, there was... Uh, the defeat of Japan, the end of a civil war be between uh, the Chinese communists and the Chinese nationalists, won by the communists, and the new state declared in 1949. Well, that was one damn thing after another that was a disaster for the Chinese people for more than a century. And it was starting with the People's Republic that this process of convergence could finally begin. Uh, the world war was over, uh, and there was a chance now to catch up. Uh, and uh, even under Mao Zedong, uh, the uh, first leader, uh, who was uh, uh, an unstable character, uh, China made some basic advances of controlling some uh, communicable diseases and beginning primary education and simplifying uh, the language and the script for widespread literacy. But uh, Mao was a figure uh, of instability also and made dreadful and very cruel mistakes. And uh, when Mao died in 1976, China was uh, in a profound crisis. Then came to power uh, a very pragmatic and very brilliant leader, Deng Xiaoping, in 1978. And with Deng Xiaoping coming to power, China had the real capacity to catch up. But wow, did it move fast? Yeah. Did it make good decisions? Uh, did it uh, build infrastructure dramatically? Uh, yes, it was a one-party rule. Uh, Americans are very suspicious uh, of that. But I will say that Deng Xiaoping's China made more rapid, substantive, and real economic advance than we've probably seen any place in history at this kind of scale. Uh, the Chinese economy grew at roughly 10% per year for 35 years, 
when you grow at that rate, every seven years, the economy doubles in size. 35 years means five doublings. Five doublings means two times two times two times two times two or 32 times increase. That's what China achieved. And by uh, 35 years, roughly uh, into uh, the uh, first decade of our century, the 21st century, China had become an industrial economy. Poverty was being rolled back. Uh, and China was uh, gradually increasing its real living standards and ending the desperation. Well, since then, China has continued its technological advance. It's still a poorer country than the United States and Western Europe. It's hard to measure precisely uh, comparisons of economies, but it's something around a, a third of the U.S. output per capita. But given that it is more than four times the U.S. population, that means that China is now a comparable size in the aggregate to the U.S. economy. It's a major trading power. It's a major technological power. I say to the good, for sure, because it means that roughly 20% of humanity living in China, 1.4 billion people, have a better life, a much better life. A longer life expectancy, higher education, uh, banishing poverty, uh, enjoying the benefits of modern technology. Uh, some in America, not a small number, unfortunately, view this as a dire threat. I do not. I view this as convergence of uh, a country catching up after lost time. And in China, the lost time was more than a century of dire lost time and several centuries of really uh, lost opportunities. And so I can only uh, be be, uh, pleased and impressed by China's accomplishments. And I think that the instinctive reaction uh, of too many American foreign policy strategists and so forth that think this is dangerous or bad is both unfair and the idea, not just unfair, I think it's a bit nasty that only we should benefit from modern technology, not the rest of the world. I don't believe that. And the idea that it's all somehow evil and against the U.S., I strongly disagree with. I've been going to China every year, often many times a year, uh, since uh, the early 1980s, almost every year. Uh, And um, I just don't see it that way. I am very happy that a great civilization uh, has found its uh, feet, uh, is uh, making advances, uh, and uh, I think is contributing to a betterment of the world. And that's how I think we should uh, view this rather than what is pretty heated propaganda especially it's gotten dramatically heated uh, with the COVID epidemic. Uh, But uh, I I think it's a mistaken view to say everything from China, oh, that's awful, evil, and against us. It's a naive misunderstanding of history to put things that way. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because of course, in the book, uh, you argue that uh, having a social democratic ethos is needs to be a key part of, of sustainable development in the 21st century. 
But China is, is certainly not a democracy, and many people would point to what they believe to be a uh, government uh, cover-up, perhaps abetted, some would argue, by the World Health Organization, and, and point to that and say, see, this is, this is why we, we're right to be concerned about so much power in the hands of a non-democratic, not very transparent uh, uh, country. Well, what, do you, what do you think about that? Well, I think, uh, first of all, when it comes to the very specifics of uh, COVID-19, I've been looking at this almost every hour of every day for months. I've been tracking down uh, the uh, arguments that this is somehow a deliberate uh, cover-up by China. It just doesn't uh, hold water, that point of view. It's more propaganda than analysis. And I'm sorry to say that our Secretary of State, uh, Pompeo, said, I have overwhelming evidence that this virus uh, was released from a laboratory in China. And I personally, uh, that is uh, Jeffrey Sachs, know scientists uh, who are leaders in virology who say, no way, it uh, didn't happen. And so I waited. I wrote uh, also op-eds, said, if you have overwhelming evidence, show it. Of course, uh, well, I shouldn't say of course. I would just say uh, never shown. I don't believe it exists. I believe it was a bluff and propaganda that is part of an ongoing effort by the Trump administration to uh, push hard against China on the more general principle that China's rise is a threat to the United States. So the first point on the specifics of the COVID-19 epidemic, I just don't believe the propaganda, or I treat it as propaganda because I've looked day to day at what has happened. And at the very beginning, I think China was very much caught off guard by an absolutely new virus. But within a short period of time, China identified a new virus, sequenced it, put the sequence online, contacted WHO, contacted the United States, and locked down Wuhan and Hubei province in late January, telling the world, oh my God, this is an emergency. And the United States sadly did not react appropriately for weeks and weeks and weeks after that. So there's no excuse. And it, in my view, is in the first weeks, basically uh, the fog of war, as it were, when you're fighting a new virus that you didn't even know existed and that is a new virus and you're trying to identify it and so forth. I just don't buy the conspiracy story. When it comes to the broader question of Chinese governance and our governance and so forth. I would say the following. First, uh, there is no perfect political system. And uh, our philosophers and Chinese philosophers have really known this for millennia. Uh, every kind of political system has its flaws. And the United States system has very deep flaws. It's very corrupted, uh, money-driven. Uh, plutocratic, very unequal, and it's produced a, a president that I think is uh, not competent uh, for the job and 
has resulted uh, in that incompetence in the vulnerability of America to this pandemic. Uh, we've lost 100,000 lives and lives continue to be lost, whereas China stopped the loss of life through very effective means, not just China, also Japan, Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, uh, and others, but the U.S. did not. So I don't give our political system high points if we're not competent in this. Mm -hmm. I would also say China's political system has done an amazing job of economic development over the period uh, roughly uh, of the last 40 years. Perfect? No way. Heavily polluting, uh, massive problems, some rising inequality. But from poverty to the current state of development is a success story of policy. It's not a failure story of policy. And when it comes to human rights, we all have our deep shortcomings. This is for sure. Uh, the United States has uh, launched several wars. Uh, we have uh, people suffering uh, actually tremendous abuses of uh, discrimination, incarceration, and so forth. And I think that China and the U.S. and many parts of the world have a lot to do to improve human rights. But China's political system is based on a different tradition. It's based on a tradition of 2,000 years of centralized administrative governance. That's not just about the Communist Party or a current dictatorship. That is a style of governance that really goes back to the Han dynasty. This goes back to before uh, the uh, uh, Common Era, in other words, yeah. to BC. And we should understand that's a different system. Uh, it's got a different philosophical base. Our philosophical base can be found in Aristotle and Christianity, and their philosophical base of governance is found far more in Confucius and in Mencius. But having said that, there is common ground for constructive, peaceful, mutually beneficial work in this world. And I uh, <clears throat> think that it's important that China and the United States championed, indeed co-wrote, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the Moral Charter of the United Nations, in 1948. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt was the great progenitor of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. But one of the great authors of it was a Chinese Confucian scholar, P.C. Chang, who in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights strove to show that the Western values and the Confucian values could be combined into a truly universal vision of human rights. So I would like us to build on what we share together as humanity rather than simply pointing fingers. And the worst part about pointing fingers is you forget about your own shortcomings. And my word, the United States has them massively in our politics right now. We are suffering a failure of politics, so we should fix our own act. You know, I, I wanted to pull back just a little bit from China and ask you sort of, a, I guess, a you might call it a global north, global south question, because you identify uh, environmental concerns as one of the main concerns of our this current age of globalization. We've certainly seen 
you know, as as we get this development that pulls people out of poverty, we also see things like loss of biodiversity and people eating more meat, which puts a lot of stress on the environment and fossil fuels and all that. But one thing I've I've heard, at least some people in developing countries say, is that it's kind of unfair and, and maybe even a little hypocritical for the rich countries from the global north to, to kind of lecture them about environmental stewardship when we were essentially doing the same things to, to get, you know, to bootstrap our, our growth. And they're, they're saying, well, we need our chance now. And I'm wondering, you know, what, what do you think about that argument? Should there be different standards for the developed and the developing world? I don't think it uh, is to any advantage of the developing world to follow our bad examples. Uh, yes, uh, we deforested massively. We polluted our air and soils. Uh, we did uh, all sorts of things wrong. But what is the most important truth right now is we learned, God, that comes at a high cost. Millions of people dying of air pollution, even with COVID-19, higher mortality rates uh, where air pollution and lung disease are higher. Uh, so I would say to developing countries, whether you want to point a finger, claim hypocrisy, and so on, it's not even to your advantage to follow the dirty path and then say, oh my God, we got to clean it up afterwards, but rather to take note that because of advances of technology, especially in the digital age, renewable energy like wind and solar power, uh, the uh, ability to do things far more efficiently because of mobile broadband dematerialization of uh, certain production, having telemedicine or distance education, things we're uh, scrambling to uh, do right now in the middle of this uh, epidemic. The possibility of having electric vehicles uh, that are uh, clean, not the internal combustion engine polluting vehicles and the diesel engine polluting vehicles, there's a path now of development and environmental safety combined. That's the idea of sustainable development. That's the idea that I champion, that I study, that I write about, uh, that is in the title of my uh, professorship. I'm a professor of sustainable development at Columbia University. And sustainable development means you can do more than one thing at a time. You can have economic growth, but you can also be socially fair and you can be environmentally sustainable. All three things simultaneously, rather than saying, don't bother me, I want to get rich. Yeah, we'll be more unequal, we'll be dirtier, but I want to get rich. It's not necessary to go that way. It's not desirable. It's not for human well-being, even of the laggard country trying to catch up. It's much better to say, I would like to live in a country that is prosperous. That means using the latest technologies. That is fair, meaning not divided between rich and poor. And that is environmentally sustainable, meaning we have water to grow food. Uh, we're not wrecking the climate. Uh, we're not killing ourselves by air pollution. Uh, we're not destroying the biodiversity that uh, both gives us pleasure, uh, that is part of our stewardship, but also that uh, pollinates our food, for heaven's sake, that allows us to grow the food that we need 
uh, to stay alive. So that's the notion that we should be aiming for all three objectives of economic prosperity, social justice, and environmental sustainability combined. We need to do that. But the better news than whether we need to do it or not is we can do it. We can do it feasibly. And there are paths for today's poor countries, many of which are in very sunny, tropical places and could use solar energy as their bootstrap because they didn't have oil, they didn't have gas, they didn't have coal. But boy, do they have sunshine. This is the approach that we should be taking. And, you know, we, you mentioned those areas and, and I haven't asked you, uh, yet a specific question about Africa. And I, of course, I know we're running a little short, but I, I have to ask you about Africa because I know how deep your concern is, especially for sub-Saharan Africa. And, and, and I got to admit, whenever I think about most of Africa, I, I, I end up feeling sort of overwhelmed and, and hopeless. And maybe in part, I think, because I wonder, if, Maybe that there are certain cultural issues behind some of the issues because I feel like even really well thought out attempts to kind of help bring Africa up, they're they're faced with this sort of massive corruption, just really poorly developed institutions, and you know big problems with things like transparency, rule of law, and property rights, and and it just honestly feels sort of overwhelming to me, and I guess probably to a lot of people in the area of development. And I'm, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how you even begin to deal with the problem that just seems so big and multifactored. Well, I, I am uh, very optimistic, actually, uh, about uh, those issues, because I don't really see those issues as uh, having uh, determined Africa's trajectory or holding back Africa uh, at this point. The history of African development, as I show in the book, uh, is that it has basically been very difficult for a long time, for centuries, for millennia. Uh, it has little to do with politics and a tremendous amount to do with physical geography. Uh, Africa is the tropical continent. Uh, there's massive, unfortunately, endemic disease. Malaria, probably the most uh, powerful hold uh, on much of Africa, but also uh, trypanosomiasis, uh, African sleeping sickness, so called, uh, which prevented uh, horses uh, and cattle from uh, occupying large parts of uh, Africa basically from time immemorial. There are parts of Africa where most domesticated farm animals could survive, but in the real tropical hold where these diseases uh, are uh, such a heavy burden, agriculture was impeded, uh, human uh, disease burdens were enormous, and what one sees is that populations tended to be sparse, uh, cities were never large, uh, what are called uh, historic empires of Africa were real, but uh, not large compared to the lucky latitude uh, empires. And uh, this was Africa's condition for a very long time, uh, not related to uh, <laughs> claims about politics uh, or uh, colonial rule, for that matter. Uh, colonialism, uh, imperial domination came in two parts. One with the uh, cruelty of the slave trade 
starting uh, in the 16th century, after, especially after uh, the opening of the Americas to European uh, colonial settlement, uh, and then to a significant extent based on African slaves brought to the Caribbean, uh, to Brazil, to the American South, and so on. And then the physical uh, presence of Europeans in Africa only starting really in the 1870s onward in large numbers when uh, Europe, uh, starting with Britain, uh, identified a way to protect against malaria, uh, what became uh, the quinine or quinine of uh, the gin and tonic, uh, the uh, beverage of uh, imperial domination of Africa. Uh, when quinine was identified as an anti-malarial, it became possible uh, for Europe to overrun Africa and uh, create a very cruel structure of imperial power. And that imperialism lasted until the 1950s to 1970s with many uh, wars of liberation needed to get the European imperial powers out. Well, by the 1970s, Africa was impoverished, though much more populous, uh, but uh, living at subsistence. And then comes this concept again of convergence. Uh, now was the time for Africa to begin by spreading education, which the European imperial powers had never done. So the cruelty of imperialism was very great. Uh, the neglect of basic uh, human needs by uh, the British, the French, the Germans during their imperial period, uh, the Portuguese. Very, very cruel. Uh, and then we point fingers at Africans saying, how can you behave that way when uh, it was Europe that was just despicably cruel for such a long period in Africa? Now, even into uh, the last decades of the last century and the early years of this century, the burdens of disease remained very severe, and a new disease emerged, uh, HIV-AIDS, the human immunodeficiency virus. And I spent many years uh, working with African colleagues on uh, helping to fight those diseases. I recommended a global fund uh, to fight AIDS, TB, and malaria, which took shape uh, in 2001 and 2002 and continues uh, operating until today with very uh, beneficial effect. My experience is there are tremendously talented uh, leaders and specialists throughout Africa, but the battle against poverty uh, is a step-by-step -step battle. Uh, just as we talk, I've been uh, in discussions this very day with some of uh, Africa's leaders on the COVID epidemic. And what the uh, African Union has done uh, has been to bring together in a very systematic manner, leading public health officials, uh, meetings of finance ministers and health ministers, specialized task forces, deployment of community health workers, deployment of new applications, and so on, very well organized, uh, a lot that we could learn from in the quality of this organization. Uh, and so far, uh, and uh, it's a big struggle, the burden of uh, COVID-19 is less in Africa than it is in the United States right now. 
Uh, and uh, I think there's a lot that we can learn by deploying community health workers and other systems that Africa has experience with because it's been fighting Ebola and AIDS and malaria and so on for many, many years. So no, I don't think that this is fundamentally a matter of governance per se. I think it's a matter of poverty, physical geography, the disease burdens, the challenges of development in the extreme tropics. But I also see a tremendous opportunity uh, with uh, the rise of solar energy, which gives a tremendous scope for new energy development in Africa, with the rise of digital technologies, which enable people even in remote villages to become online to get telemedicine, distance education, and so forth, e-payments, e-governance. In other words, using the digital technologies as a leapfrog technology, this is really the possibility for Africa now. Yeah. Well, that is that that is definitely an optimistic look at things, and I think that would be a great place to end on this optimistic note. So, Jeffrey X, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Ah, it's been great to be with you, and thank you so much, and I look forward to another opportunity together. That's it for today's show. We hope you like what you heard. If you'd like a second full-length Politics Guys episode every single week, as opposed to just these occasional interviews, you can get that by becoming a Patreon supporter. Supporters also get ad-free versions of every episode, as well as other good stuff. To get the details and to become a supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if you can't afford to become a supporter, to email me at mike at politicsguys.com and I will get you full access to that second episode every single week. And if being a monthly supporter is too much of a commitment, but you still like to help us out occasionally, you can do that too through PayPal. You'll find the link on our website, politicsguys.com slash support. And if you haven't already subscribed to the show, that is a big help as well as leaving ratings and reviews and especially sharing your favorite episodes on social media. That's a big deal to us. And if you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, or whatever, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. For more great discussions, check out our bipartisan politics subreddit. You'll find the URL in the show notes. We've also got a Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we're on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.